Hey everyone, I'm DJ. And I'm Ish, and we're the hosts of the, the Pero Let, Let Me Tell, Tell You podcast. podcast. So what is the Pero Let Me Tell You podcast? Well, it's two lifelong friends from Miami discussing current events, news, politics, and pop culture. In a nutshell, we talk about anything, everything, and absolutely nothing, just like you and your friends, loque with a healthy dose of Spanglish. And we interview the best Latin personalities around. Ah, like actress Melissa Fumero. And don't forget Harvey Yang from What We Do in the Shadows. Oh my God, and Olympic gymnast Daniel Leva. We got to hold his medals. Yes, we did. And then, of course, the one and only, my personal favorite dream guest, Gina Torres. Oh, an absolute goddess. But I mean, honestly, there's just too many guests for us to list. The important thing is we're always putting the spotlight on the Latin community because we truly do believe representation matters. Así que check out Pero Let Me Tell You podcast on all podcast streaming platforms today with new episodes dropping every Friday. And I really mean every Friday, people. <laughs> oh, and don't forget your croquetas, your pastelitos, and, and your cafecitos. Hey, Frida. Hey, Carmen. What's up? Well, I was thinking about how this entire season we have been talking a lot about what it means to be a woman and various aspects of it. So like with Mariana Grajales, we were talking a lot about motherhood and symbolism in terms of like what she means in history. Then mm -hmm. we also did an episode where we talked a lot about what it was like to be raised as girls, as you know, with Cuban traditional values and what we saw in our community. And that was obviously from a very female perspective because that's where we're coming from. And, you know, as we continue to think about these things over and over again to make different episodes, I kind of start to wonder about the role of feminism as a concept in the Cubanity. Like, I don't know. Mm, can we mm -hmm. can we pinpoint maybe where that all started? Like, do we have any bastion of Cuban feminism? What does that look like? What were the factors that these women, if any, were working with? And so let's go on a history lesson. Take it easy, history journey. We're focusing on Ana Betancourt, who was born around the same time as Mariana Grajales, and who even was featured in our episode because they coexisted and were both mambisas. In the consciousness of Cuba becoming Cuba and Cuba becoming a nation, the mambises were just such an important group of people who were changing society in Cuba. And the women that belonged to the Mambises were so, so incredibly crucial to the formation of our ideas about like women's rights. And Ana Betancourt is a Mambisa who focused a lot of her energies in her writing, in her speaking, in her kind of organizing as well. And also we can talk about her because she is the first known woman to have really made any statements that have been recorded on women's rights. So that's how we got here. So that being said, she was born on December 4th, 1832. It is said that she was born to a wealthy criollo family in Camagüey. And I, I know we have some questions about what it means to be criollo. But yeah, I don't know, Frida, what, what did we come to? Well, in terms of like Ana Betancourt herself, we're not really sure about what criollo means in the context of explaining her family. But there's a, a couple of possible interpretations. So criollo could refer to anyone 
who uh, was native to Cuba from the 16th century onwards. So that could be a family who originally came from Spain or from Europe and spent many generations in Cuba. And so it's an identity group that it's kind of separate from ethnicity and race or religion. So she could have been partially Taino, but she also just came from a family that, let's just say, had roots in Cuba. And they were a wealthy family. So... Of course, this means that Ana Betancourt grows up in a certain class of society. She you have is, to be a lady. You have to be a lady. So she has like all of the classes on like embroidery and probably painting or some sort of art like that. And or she, how to read with your like how to read with your legs crossed in the corner of the sitting room, right? Right. The, um, you, know, you know, typical little <laughs> things like that. You know, lady things. And she's been schooled in all of that. And I find that really interesting because. She exists almost in this more doll-like kind of expectation of womanhood because what else were women doing at the time except for like getting married and having babies and probably really quite young I don't know so for her to have turned out the way that she did is really quite remarkable so she marries a man at age 22 called Ignacio Mora y de la Pera of the pair if you're wondering what that means. So he came from the pair. And this man is from the pair. Imagine to be married to a man that's from the pair. Mmm, juicy. I would love that. Um, He was... <laughs> he was... Uh, apparently a very smart and well-educated man. So, great. We love um, it. We love it. We love to see that. I mean, we, we actually... This isn't the first time we're going to mention him. Like, Ignacio Mora is an in-and-out character in Ana Betancourt's life. But rather, Ignacio Mora is a kind of co-conspirator and partner of Ana Betancourt in, like, in many of her efforts. Yeah. So they definitely had a relationship that was joined together by this cause. It kind of seems like a lot of the women that were covering, you know, were... Of course, married to yeah, someone because it's to, this time. Right, right. But married to people who were part of this cause. Mm -hmm. I, you know, can you imagine being a woman in this time in Cuba doing this without your husband being comfortable with it? I bet you couldn't. No. I bet it was really, really hard. Probably. Um, yeah. So I think that's why we keep finding that the women like either happened to marry very supportive men or were with men who were like as part of this Already cause. Already aligned. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. thing for sure. Especially because even now, that's still, I feel like a lot of women would probably, many Cuban women would probably have a hard time standing so, like so hard for something that their husbands Solidly did not agree against. with. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's that's an something requiring so much sacrifice too. Like yeah. on top of that, you have to sacrifice a lot. And and here's one thing about Ana Betancourt and her marriage with Ignacio Mora, like while we're talking about that stage in her life, you know, we searched everywhere and we don't think she had any children. She didn't oh, have yeah. any children with him. We couldn't, yeah. yeah, which is which is also really interesting because I feel like this must have meant that she was infertile or she was on some birth control that I don't know was not documented because, which I'm not saying is impossible. I'm sure there was birth control, but I think that's really interesting because during this time, if you're a woman, it's your just like you're gonna have kids whether you want to or not. Like that's kind of yeah. How you're it not is. just gonna have one or two. No. You're gonna have thirteen. Yeah, okay, or fifteen. It's gonna be like a Mariana Grajale situation type of thing. And so she didn't have any. And yeah, so this meant that she out. right. And so this this also means that she has a very unique perspective and her views and her actions in feminism are coming from a place where she's not burdened by the responsibility of child care and also she is supported by her husband. So that's a good foundation to go off of to 
become a pretty radicalized person in society, I would say. On that same note, it also informs the kind of feminist ideas that emerge from her later. She was a figure of the Ten Years' War, and as we already mentioned, Mambisas, like, she was a Mambisa, she was involved with, like, all of the major figures that you you have heard us talk about. And, of course, she was pen pals with Jose Martí. Who doesn't want to be pen pals with Jose Martin? I want to be pen pals. Oh my God, beautiful. I and would sure, look forward to sure, she was a speechwriter and all of that. But like, what did they say to each other? Do you think it was like practical and informative and about the war? Or do you think it was about the consciousness of the nation? Do you think, hold on, that Ana Betancourt had any, any opinions about the way that Jose Martí characterized women in his work? Interesting. Mm. Super dun, hypothetical. Dun, dun, dun. Because we are not privy. We're not, yeah, sound effects for sure. We're not privy to their minds. But anyway, this whole pen pal ship with Jose Martí does have my imagination (laughs) running wild. Yeah, and so she, during this time, during the 10 years war, turned her home into a command center. So, of of course, because this is what you do. And so, okay, so like, what does that mean though, a command center? Like, you basically run distribution of supplies. You make things. You make weapons. sure that people get fed. You have rep- weapons. But that means exactly. weapons too. Like that means like command center. Yeah. Like the center of the war. So like here is Ana Betancourt con una casa that's a command center. Mariana Grajal is over there, you know, running the running hospital. Running the Bush Hospital. <laughs> it's just like these are the revolutionary women of Cuba and they are complete badasses. And I'm like, wow, I, I could never. <laughs> <laughs> like the first shot I I would hear, I would just like shit myself completely. Forget it. Another thing that Ana Betancourt did aside from run an entire command center was that she started a newspaper and it was called El Mambi. Yeah, El Mambi. It was a newspaper that she printed from a mobile printing press that her and her hubby named Libertad. And from the jungle. This mobile printing press from the jungle. From the straight up jungle. <laughs> Oh my god. And so what is the place like what is the place of a newspaper in a war? Well, reporting what's happening on the ground or reporting something that's different from the Spanish news, which was apparently very one-sided yeah. and there very, were reports that they were saying motivated. that like the war had already been won and the Spanish had won it, and like to just try to like you know defeat morale that way too. And, and, and so Ana Betancourt was like, "No, I am going to speak that truth." Right, right. We're going to distribute something that's going to tell people a, a narrative that's going to be really key to I bet like keeping morale up keeping resources coming in the Mm -hmm. direction of the rebels unfortunately though they had about three publications it could have been one it could have been up to three until they you know just casually had to burn their city down to stop the Spanish so sometimes that's a big sometimes like when you're in a when you're in a pinch you just you just burn the whole city down and then the Spanish have to struggle through the flames and the coals to approach you. Yeah, if you're also running a mobile printing press, you just uh, leave that shit that behind. Gets burnt down as you leave that behind. Yeah. So it was like to this day, people still talk about El Mambi. And I also wonder if Radio Mambi, the radio show that like started like after the revolution from Miami and paid for by the US government, um, if that had anything to do with like El Mambi, the original newspaper. Because I think that the Radio Mambi, they were saying that they were trying to spread a truth that's different mm. from the Cuban revolution. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, did they did they take that from the history books? Uh, maybe. They probably did. Knowing they knowing Cubans, did. yeah, knowing yeah, Cubans, yeah. They were like, this is their name. hundred percent. hundred percent. So later on, Ana Betancourt and her husband were both surprised by enemy guerrilla warfare in 1871. She apparently saved her husband's life, but was taken prisoner. Um, she had arthritis in her leg and that prevented her from actually fleeing. And so she was kept prisoner um, and was kept under a seba tree. A seba? I'm sorry, for three pause. Months. That sounds like such an amazing story, like as part of like a like a revolutionary thriller type of thing, because I would love to have seen that fight scene where she like somehow cleverly found a way for this man to escape. But like, I don't know what happened to her. Like, we don't really know the details of it. And I wish that we did. And I I would love to see like movies or like, you know, different iterations or like fanfic on what that could have looked like. Yeah, I am here for that. I'd like to think that she used something clever. Yeah. In order to confuse or disorient or use some sort of negotiating skill. You know, just more fantasies about who this person might have been. We have facts and then we have imagination. Yeah, they, uh, her captors kept her under a seba, a tree, for three months. Three months. And they kept her there as, yeah, as bait to attract her husband, who was a colonel of the army. They were, like, very intense because no one came. (laughs) Nope. And she also told him not to come for him. She wrote, I prefer to be a widow of a man of honor than to be the wife of a man without dignity and tainted. Oh, my God. Which basically meant... That if you come here and you grab me, I'm gonna be I, so fucking pissed. I'm gonna be I, so pissed because you're <laughs> because you have given up your fucking dignity, you coward. Oh, uh, what, is a what marriage, that means? You know? Like, I mean, they definitely, they definitely. Yo, of what is agreed. with it? What is with Cuban women? And be- <laughs> I agree. What is with Cuban women? Because, uh, like, Mariana Grajale is just like, oh, one of my sons died. No big deal. Now There's it's more. your turn, younger son. You know, yeah. these kinds of honor and dignity and all of this stuff just keeps reminding me how much, like, this independence movement was so founded on personal honor and morality. Mm-hmm. Like, we have... I know this is all about Ana Betancu, but we have Jose Martí out oh, here yeah. being like a moral compass. We have we have Mariana Grajales being like like get up and like fight with honor. And now we're covering Ana Betancur, who is just who would rather die than to be married, <laughs> just married to a man, just married to a man without. Yo, everybody's super hardcore. I can't. Very very. You know, this hardcore. is giving super Outlander vibes. Like, she didn't necessarily travel from the 1940s to early revolutionary Cuba to change the course of history. Or did she? Or did she? It's like the Jacobis were kind of like this, the Mambises. Folks, if you if you watch Outlander, if you personally watch Outlander, like, you're going to start to imagine Ana Betancourt as a... Sassanak. Sassanak. That's, that's all you need to know. As, as Sassanak. Yeah. If you know, you know. <laughs> I love this. To add to the drama, so we have Ana Betancourt tied to a tree. Wait, is and she well, tied to the tree happening. or is she just under the she tree? She is. She's tied to the tree. Okay, tied to the tree. Interesting. Oh, 
wait, no, that was just again my imagination. I don't know. <laughs> I can I know that she's under a tree for months, but I'm wondering why would she not be tied? Is she in a cage? Be- no, because she could be tied to a stake. She could be tied to like any number of she could be in a cage. Yeah. She could be tied to the floor. She could be a cage. Yeah. All I'm, right. I'm really mm-hmm. glad we went through this. So yeah. Ana Betancourt may or may not have been tied to a tree, but she was definitely under a tree when they simulated an execution and basically like scared the shit out of her uh, and didn't actually kill her. Mm-hmm. I bet they were trying to get her to have like to really experience a near death experience so that she writes to her husband and says, I felt like I died. But that did not happen. No. She kept trying to escape. Mm hmm. And she eventually did escape. Uh, She eventually managed to get to Havana and she was hiding. But unfortunately, she was found and was deported to Mexico. Which honestly, if I were her, I would have been like, thank fucking God they didn't kill me because they had no reason to keep her alive. Okay, so she gets deported to Mexico and then she decides that she wants to make her way up to New York and in 1872 moves to New York. Oh my God, Carmen, do you think that she was there while Jose Martí was there and they like met up in a coffee shop somewhere? Oh, I really hope so. That sounds so hot. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it? (laughs) I would hope that Ana Betancourt has an affair, you know, of some sort, you know, because she really needed to have a good time after whatever happened to her. But but this is again our imagination. Um, <laughs> this we've did made not this into happen. A, a historical soap opera. Of at this course, point. why not? But yeah, she gets to New York, and of course, like you know, every time I go to New York, I visit the president of the United States. Oh yeah, I, you have to do it. It's a must. You have to do it. So, <laughs> Ana Betancourt <laughs> somehow ends up talking to the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, and she asks him to pardon students. Uh, that were imprisoned in 1871 in Cuba because she's still working for Cuba's liberation. And did he pardon them? We can't find anywhere whether or not he actually did. Mm Would have made for an interesting story if we found, you know, Ulysses Grant pardon some students that were imprisoned. Uh, I'm not sure if they wanted to get involved in international affairs in that way. No, probably not. Um, Actually, I can't believe I just said that. Like, the United States was so, so ready to snatch Cuba up. They weren't going to get involved in this in particular, but they were going to absolutely get involved later. Yeah, no, but it's just like they looked at the grand scheme of things and they were like, yeah, you know, like, this is small potatoes. We don't need to go that. We don't need to go. No, we're here. We're here to snatch up the country. Yeah. It's it's what we're going to do. So just a little spoiler alert for history. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, Um, history happened. (laughs) It happened. Uh, She ended up in Jamaica after that and was there for a few years. And Mariana Grajales was in Jamaica. I hope they both enjoyed some Jamaican spiced rum (laughs) while they were there. Mm-hmm. On a porch somewhere with like really beautiful foliage. I can see that. Yeah. 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 That sounds like a Frida, you want to do that when we get old? I feel like I want to do that when we get old. Yeah, I would. I would love to do that. So she was in Jamaica until 1875. Also in 1875, Ignacio Mora de la Pera gets killed, brutally murdered. It was very sad. So she comes back. 
and yeah. she signs the Pact of El Sajon as his widow. And that pact is what ended the Ten Years' War. Yeah, and so she was able to sign a like really important document that ended a war. She did so as a widow, but in many ways we can say she did so as like an actor in her own right in this space. Of course. I mean, the circumstances that, that would allow her to rise up that way are very specific. At the end of the day, she still made sense. She was recognized in her own right as well. She wasn't only called upon as a widow. So remember that at the top of the episode, we told you that Ana Betancourt is the first woman to have been recorded speaking up for women's rights. She delivered a speech, or rather she wrote a speech that was delivered by a man in 1869. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I know it sounds dirty. <laughs> it's 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 like a la Handmaid's Tale, where you know, like again, we we have a lot of drama references here. Like she couldn't give her speech because women weren't considered citizens, so they couldn't actually speak in the Congress. And so someone named Ignacio Agramonte gave it. And so this is a lot like Serena from Handmaid's Tale, who basically wasn't supposed to have given a speech in front of men and mm -hmm. did. And she bore some very serious consequences. And so... Spoiler um, alert, they cut off her finger. Um, So, yeah, look, they, it's not that this woman Serena, was punished for, for doing that, right? But I want to say that it's no coincidence that very shortly afterwards, she gets blitzed and surprised by the enemy and then gets captured and held under a tree for, for three months. You know, it's like... The parallels are quite shocking sometimes. Like when I was thinking about that and reading this, it it was honestly bone chilling how The Handmaid's Tale is is real in some ways. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's got it's good storytelling because it resonates. So it was in the Asamblea de Guaymaro. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Where Guaymaro? where Ana Betancourt's speech was given. The Guaymaro Assembly was one of many assemblies that were being put together where representatives from different areas of Cuba, and it was three areas of Cuba, could be present in order to decide on the future constitution of their country. And so there were rebels that were coming, rebel representatives that were coming from different parts of Cuba, all of them having slightly different views, some more conservative, some more radical, and they were coming together in order to establish what kind of system of government would come into place. And so it was in the context of this that there was a third meeting, and that's where Ana's speech was given. And it was 1869, which was a few years after the Ten Years' War. And she said, well, now we've emancipated Black people. We should free women. In a couple more specific statements, she groups la cuna, which is the cradle, el color, which is color, and el sexo, which is sex or gender, she groups them into slaveries or forms of slavery that Cuban people are trying to abolish as a nation. Those are strong words. Um, <laughs> I just, okay, but what I find really interesting is I would have paid a lot of money to have watched that come out of Ignacio's mouth. I would almost feel like, would that lend more credibility to it that it's re read by a man or would he do a bad job and then people would be like, nobody's taking you seriously, bruh. Like, you drunk, go home. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. You know, we don't we don't have actual records. No, of, we like, don't. But I wonder. This. We don't. 
I yeah, wonder. Yeah, I wonder as well. And I and like really what we know from this is that a constitution was developed and written. And it was Cuba's constitution for 1869 to 1878. So the Waimaro constitution was in place for basically the entirety of the Ten Years' War. And this constitution said nothing about women, but it did establish a kind of president and a unicameral, like one house of legislature. It also said that the military wasn't to have full control of everything, but this was all during a war, so we know what happened. Like, the military, yeah. like, took a lot we of precedent. That. And so it was, like, yeah. this initial attempt at organizing society. And really, it was quite simple. It had, like, 29 amendments. I don't know. It's kind of just, like, it's cool that she gave the speech and all, and I'm glad she did. And then did. nothing happened. And I'm, so. and I'm glad it was, like, <sighs> this first record of how one woman who was a mambisa conceptualized, like, the order of things. That like, you know, we're slowly but surely freeing ourselves of different things. Let's do, let's do gender next. And it's like, she's like, oh, let's do gender next. And everyone's like, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and uh, this context emerged from a woman not delivering her own speech, possibly, to an assembly that came out with a constitution that only lasted 10 years. Like... Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, <sighs> are we surprised by any of this? Because I have to be frank with you, I no, personally takes, am not. It takes more work than a little. It takes more work than a little speech. I know. I mean, yes, <laughs> obviously, and not that she wasn't doing that kind it of work, but also, what kind of pull does she have at that point? True, you also have to question that as well. But but okay, we can also get into then. How did Ana Betancourt move the Cuban independence forward, if not with this speech? Because I think it's significant that she wrote it. It's significant that it's the first record that we have of that coming from a woman herself. And, you know, she has merit in her actions and her life. Fine. But what were those specific things that she contributed? Something that she did was like reflect the rise of this this kind of consciousness that was emerging from Mambisas and reflect how in this struggle against colonialism that like women just got brave enough to really question their place in their their role and position in society because if you're restructuring society you're like yeah oh, you're thinking hold about on a that. second mm-hmm. you're thinking about it and she demanded to be freed and demanded to be seen as equal partners as, as she might have experienced while being a mambisa while kind of like having this role in in an independence movement. So Ana Betancourt's way of connecting women's rights to freedom and a freedom that is much like freedom from colonialism or freedom from, from being enslaved, it, it's saying Cuban feminism maybe is somewhat intersectional, like... What I do we mean by that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting that she that she reached that frame of mind and that sort of framework because, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like that is a very clear point about all of this, but I feel also that her, a woman from her perspective, might not necessarily be as motivated to think that way 
because remember yeah, she came that from like she's an a white lady who came from class. wealthy exactly so for her for her to mm-hmm. look around and say hey this fight is intersectional and no one wins unless we all win that's a big deal that is like super progressive which is another reason why i'm like this is giving outlander vibes like this is very <laughs> progressive of somebody from from her status and from from her time period and i i just i'm very proud of it. like i want to a round of applause please for anavetancourt because that's pretty great so she went to new york after learning of the tragedy that happened to her husband and And Carmen, eventually she ended up in Madrid where she passed away from a bronchitis. Yeah, I think it's it, everywhere that I read for Bronco some reason. Something. You know what I think? Okay, here's a little aside, right? One of those things that I find curious is when, whenever we do research about this type of thing, every now and again, you will get oddly specific details about one particular part of a, like someone's life like how they lived or how they died or like remember julio lobo who had his like eldest grandchild christened with what apple like things like that that yeah. they, it's like oddly specific okay so one oddly specific thing is that multiple sources all claimed the weather that night and they all said that it was a humid and cold night when she died mm. with her bronchitis and i'm el like sereno. El sereno. <laughs> if you know you know careful guys if you know you know um yeah so she died in she died in madrid she lived a longer life uh, definitely than someone who was involved in a war might might often be expected to live yeah after her death ana betancourt much like jose marti and marina grajales are you know, continued to be symbols that were used in support of the Cuban Revolution that happened in 1959. So there were a bunch of schools that have been established in her name and they educate rural women, which is great. That is I that think is initially awesome. that was it was set to get everybody up to at least a sixth grade level. I think I read that. If Ana Betancourt were to see what happened with how the Cuban Revolution used her image, would she like barf? Or would she be like, oh, yeah, totally. Like, good job, guys. She would want to see freedom for women. Let's examine what kind of role the communist revolution expected women to have versus what maybe the kinds of freedoms that Ana Betancourt might have wanted. So, like, when we're thinking about the communist revolution, like, it was... In some ways, it gave women more equal footing because women were starting to be educated at a better rate and women were also being called upon to do military-style roles or paramilitary-style roles. But when we think about whether women are truly free in Cuba, uh, we do have to ask ourselves whether women have autonomy over their own bodies, whether it's hard or easy for women to take care of themselves. And also whether women are protected from violence and from subjugation. And I don't think that any of that is necessarily true of Cuba, even even in modern day Cuba. I think another thing that we can look to now is like, what are the equivalent 
type of women in Cuba now? Like, what is their life look like? Like, are oh, they yeah. able to be free? And immediately, Yoani Sanchez comes to mind because yes. she affected. There's a lot of parallels there too. Yoani Sanchez is a journalist in Cuba who broadcasts, and she's written a lot of op-eds. She is highly critical of the government, and she's constantly on house arrest. Yeah. So Yoani Sanchez, who parallels in many ways, and Ana Betancourt, like someone who use uh, uses her pen as a weapon, is currently not being supported by uh, the Cuban regime. It's like everything is kind of topsy-turvy when you think about it. Bloop. I think another kind of parallel, at least to the Mambisas, would be Las Damas de Blanco today, who are the women in white. And these are women who are partners, wives, sisters, mothers of men who are political prisoners in Cuba. And they are constantly protesting, marching while getting beat up and proclaiming that these people and more be free. And they remind me of the Mambisas because they are women at the front putting themselves at great risk to organize and to ask for freedom. And these Damas de Blanco have been around forever. Like, well, from my young perspective, they've been around for a long time doing this kind of work. But, but, here's, but here's the thing. They're not asking for women's rights. They had to go back down the ladder to ask for basic freedom in the first place. Yeah. Which is interesting to do that, to sometimes say, well, we're just going to focus on one part of freedom first when freedom is, is, is all kinds of freedom at once. Or liberation is all kinds of liberation at once. Like you, ideally you include everyone. <laughs> In a way, I think that Ana Betancourt also subscribed to this specific hierarchy because even though the cause that she adopted for herself for her life was women's rights, yes, we are, we've been talking about that for what, as, as long as we have this whole episode, sure. But at the end of the day, you know, she spent the last years of her life transcribing her husband's wartime diaries. And you don't do that shit for gusto, just to be like, oh, for my health. Like, no, you do that when you believe that it's, it's important to, to preserve that memory, that record, that document keeping. Like, remember that she was also putting out a newspaper and trying to record a different side of how things were actually happening and going down. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think that that tells you a lot about what she valued and what her priorities were. I think this woman at the end of the day was ride or die for Cuban independence. Absolutely. And ese es el cuento de la buena pipa, you know? Y ese es el cuento de la buena pipa. <laughs> this is our cubanismo for this episode. But usually it's said in the context like of like, ¿Tú quieres escuchar el cuento de la buena pipa? <laughs> like, like asking you, are, do you want to hear the story of the good pipe? <laughs> right. It literally translates to, do you want to hear the story of the good pipe? But the figurative meaning is, do you want me to tell you the truth? Because this is, this, is, this is the truth, nothing but the truth, and a little bit of imagination sprinkled in. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of it. <laughs> I mean, that's, I would hope that that is our episode. <laughs> yeah, like... I With mean, all the drama llamas of, like, Outlander, E. Hamisale, and, you know. I mean, how, do, how else do we keep up an oral history of Cuba? We have to add in the... El Cuento de la Buena Viva. Of course. The Cuento de la Buena Viva for sure. So thank you so much for listening. And we love you. Thank you. And thank you especially much to our patrons. Jesse, Kellis, Yvette, Josh, Daniel, Jason, Karena, Sarah, Kristen, Kaylee, Lauren, Salia, Susan, Jose, Ryan, Derek, Dee, Vidal, Gianni, Carolina, Elena, and Lady. We love you so much. 
Follow us on social media at Take It Easy Pod. You can email us at takeiteasypod at gmail.com. And also, you can buy some merch from us at our website, takeiteasypod.com. We love you. And go ahead and take it easy. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.